You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association, generously sponsored by Ulster Bank. Hello, listeners. My name is Amory Butler, and I'm the president of the Agricultural Science Association. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, episode 11, in our ASA podcast series, Experts in Their Field. ASA Council member Tommy Boland was delighted to catch up with Professor Mike Gibney, Emeritus Professor of Food and Health at UCD. Originally from Dublin, Professor Gibney details his extensive international experience and learnings from a distinguished career in food and health. Professor Gibney explores the complex topics of obesity and childhood malnutrition and the strength of a multidisciplinary approach to food and health research. ASA thank Professor Gibney for his participation and wish him and his family the very best. Hello everyone, my name is Tommy Boland. You're very welcome to the latest instalment of the Agricultural Science Association podcast series, Experts in Their Field. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Mike Gibney, Emeritus Professor of Food and Health at University College Dublin, formerly of Trinity, and founder and former director of the Institute of Food and Health in University College Dublin, and most importantly of all, an ag graduate in 1971. Good morning, Mike, and welcome. Thank you, Tommy. Delighted to be here now. Thanks very much for joining us, Mike. And if you could just start off by maybe giving us a little bit of your background and your journey, firstly into ag science in UCD, and then going on to, to forge perhaps one of the preeminent careers in, in human nutrition uh, in, in Ireland. Well, uh, when, I was, when I was growing up, uh, Sean Lamass was the Taoiseach, and he had transformed Ireland into a, an outward-looking uh, nation that was going to expand its 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 industry. And the food industry was really the hub of that growth. You had people like uh, Mickey Joe Costello, the general in the sugar company. You had Father McDyer up in uh, Donegal running the, the co-ops, and you had Tony O'Reilly in Aaron Foods. And these were inspirational people, plus uh, a few others that uh, really impressed me. So I wanted to study food science. So I wandered up once to the Agricultural College, which was nearby where I lived, and I met Tom Clear, the dean of the faculty, and he explained to me that there was no food science in UCD. There was only dairy science in Cork, but he said there's a new degree starting in agricultural chemistry if I was interested. So I went to see John Lestrange, and he persuaded me, and I joined the faculty in 1966. I had five years because I had to do a practical year being a, a dub and very little agricultural experience. And I had five absolutely wonderful years, made great friends, learned an enormous amount and uh, carried it with me uh, throughout my life. It was a wonderful experience. So when I finished my degree, I had a choice, uh, you know, possibly go into research or possibly uh, start looking for work in the government or industry. So I decided to do a master's to test the water. I did that with John Lestrange, and then I decided I would do a PhD. And I started to look around the world, and I, I was offered a few places, but the one I took was at the University of Sydney Veterinary School. Uh, they had a very, very big tradition in uh, animal science, in genetics, nutrition, reproductive biology. So myself and my wife, Jo, uh, pregnant she was at the time, we went all the way out to Sydney, and I spent three years working my backside off on the nutrition and digestive physiology of neonatal lambs. That was my, my contribution to the world. So after that, I 
I, I got a Government of Ireland scholarship to return to Ireland to work with the what was then called the Agricultural Institute, and I was supposed to be working in in Dunsinay in the Department of Biochemistry. But in fact, I was moved out to Grange, and to to put it mildly, it wasn't a very uh, happy experience. Um, and I began to dabble in the field of 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 human nutrition, just looking at data. And in fact, I spoke to the then director much about it. He was very supportive. But I didn't see any future in it. And so I applied for a job at Southampton University in the medical school there. And I started there on the 1st of September, I think it was 1977. And um, that was moving from animal nutrition straight into human nutrition, teaching medical students, science students, and uh, starting to build up a research program in human nutrition. Um, so I, I worked in immunology and heart disease. Um, then uh, Thatcher, I'm afraid, uh, began to cause a demise in British universities at the time, and they became very uh, difficult to operate in. Several people began to leave the department, and I saw a job in Trinity to set up a new degree course in human nutrition and dietetics. So I applied and, and got that job, and then spent, what, 20, nearly 24 years in Trinity. Uh, based in the Department of Clinical Medicine, based in St. James's Hospital, a strange place for an ag graduate to end up less. That was it. And then um, I had a wonderful time in Trinity, but I, I eventually uh, was told that there was an opportunity to uh, apply for a post in UCD um, and that it would involve uh, the whole area of food and health. And it, it was exciting. I was 57. I was just ready for another change in life. I had 23 people working in my lab. I had more income than anyone else in the School of Physics, as it was called, School of Medicine, I suppose now it is. And um, I was very happy, but I was very tempted. And Brady and Dolores O'Riordan and the like who persuaded me that I might get a a, a good time in, in UCD. And I, I moved there and had no regrets whatsoever. I had a wonderful time. So that's it. I retired uh, seven years ago, and um, I love it. But good to hear you're enjoying the retirement, Mike. And listen, I think you, you, you've given us a really good trip, um, I suppose, through, through the evolution of your career. And also, you, you've listed off a, a number of names which are synonymous with, with the industry in Ireland um, and, with, I suppose, with developments in UCD as well. It's probably clear to me from what you've said so far, you were never afraid of a challenge. You know, a dub going to do ag um taking your yourself and your pregnant wife taking off to Sydney to do a PhD and then you know the various uh, challenges in setting up new degree programs in Trinity and the Institute of Food and Health in UCD. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit now around your, your time in UCD when you came back to the university. Um and under Hugh Brady's presidency there was a lot of change ongoing in the university at that stage. Could you talk me through the thought process behind the foundation of the Institute of Food and Health and, and what the objectives were of the Institute of Food and Health when it was developed in UCD? Uh, sure, Tommy. I mean, uh, basically, I had, uh, because of my background in agricultural science, um, I looked at food differently than someone who would have studied just pure biochemistry and moved into nutrition because I had an understanding of where food came from. And uh, <clears throat> if you look at the history of ag degrees around the world, you look at Cornell or Davis or uh, Wisconsin, they all moved into nutrition and they all moved into um, 
environmental science, so to speak. Uh, the same was true of Wageningen and Reading and so on. And so I was aware of the growing interest in reconnecting the elements of the food chain chain in what's called a, a food systems approach. And uh, that's something that really appealed to me. And so when, uh, when I was offered the chance to go to UCD, I took it because in UCD you had um, primary production, you had food science, you had food engineering, you had food safety, you had nutrition, you had uh, consumer science. We even had people in law, the law school who were interested in <clears throat> regulatory affairs and food. So it was a marvelous opportunity to bring all this together to create a multidisciplinary institute that would <clears throat> benefit us all. And, and uh, so I, I, I moved over with my 23 staff and um, was well-equipped with laboratories and all that in UCD. We, we managed to get a, a floor in the uh, new building of the Science Centre. And it was, it was wonderful fun. And uh, I had worked as uh, Vice Provost of Research in Trinity under the provost, uh, Provostship of John Hegarty. So I, I kind of knew what the internal politics of the university was. And I got on great with Hugh Brady. I found him absolutely inspirational. And um, I, uh, <clears throat> it went on from there. And the people in UCD were just brilliant. And might then, I suppose, if we focus in, in more detail of, of the work you're actually doing, and, and a lot of your work and a lot of your writings have focused on, you know, the link between food and health and, and food and obesity. And I think, you know, perhaps one of the greatest challenges we're faced with as a society now is the increasing kind of obesity epidemic for use, for want of a better word, that we're faced, um, facing nationally and, and internationally. And I suppose maybe just give us some history or some of the history. Obesity is a relatively modern phenomenon in, in, in the human species it, it, dating back just a few hundred years. Can you kind of talk us through the evolution of obesity and, you know, what, what has caused it and, you know, where we're going in, in our challenge and in our fight against obesity? Well, first of all, um, <clears throat> obesity isn't modern. It's been there forever. Whenever uh, you get affluence, uh, you get obesity. And wherever you have poverty, you don't find it at all. So in Roman times, um, there was uh, considerable levels of obesity. And Greek writers have described uh, tribes that were lazy and indolent and were overweight. Um, you saw it right through, through history. Um, so it, it's not something that's new. It's just that the world got richer. Um, food prices dropped with mechanization. Um, food was transported readily and quickly around the world. And so we had what you might want to call uh, an obesogenic environment because we had, on the one hand, technology that absolutely reduced physical activity and at the same time provided us with uh, affordable, convenient and very appetizing uh, foods. And <clears throat> the, a very important thing to remember is that not everyone is overweight or obese. So the question is, why are some people overweight and some people protected? And there's, there's a couple of ways you can look at this. The absolutely wrong way is to stigmatize people and say, ah, they're lazy, uh, it's their fault, they've no self-control. That's completely proven to be utterly wrong. Basically, 80% uh, of the uh, extent of obesity is heritable. This is known from 
many, 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 many studies of identical and non-identical twins where they, the geneticists can sort out the environmental impact and the inherited impact. And about 80% of obesity is inherited. We, we don't know what genes are involved because there's so many genes involved in obesity. And one way of looking at this is you might look at a pile of genes that are operating inside the body that make the, the, the eyes look differently on food. Um, and maybe some people just are uh, equipped with a better way of, of regulating their intake. But it, unfortunately, uh, the issue of obesity has been reduced to some very simple things, and it is a very complicated condition. And fundamentally, it's very simple because it's, you eat more calories than you expend. Uh, and if you're genetically predisposed, well, you're going to gain weight. And uh, we, we know that for a fact. And if you restrict your calorie intake below your requirements, you'll lose weight. So that's all there. So although uh, we have obesity as a, as a huge problem, um, uh, there are bigger problems in the world. I mean, I suppose I would always have to mention when I talk about obesity, childhood malnutrition. Every day, 30 fully laden passenger jets crashing, killing everyone on board. That's the number of children that die every day from malnutrition. So if you, if you put that against the perspective of, of obesity, you can say to yourself, in one, in, in one case, obesity is the biggest problem facing the world. And the other one, you could say hunger is the biggest problem facing the world. Now, sadly, the two of them coexist together. So you have places like Punjab, where you have children that are stunted in growth, not able to achieve their genetic potential for height. And at the same time, you have rampant type 2 diabetes because of obesity. So it's a, it's a complicated uh, problem, and it needs a complicated approach to solve it. And unfortunately, I don't see that happening. Um, Mike, in terms of those kind of two contradictory but concurrent problems of malnutrition and obesity, can you just take us through some of the progress that's been made um, or some of the efforts that have been made in, in addressing those challenges? Well, I think there's been more, much more progress in, in combating uh, malnutrition because um, you have programs like uh, one of the pro big problems with malnutrition is you have this uh, uh, sort of silent malnutrition of micronutrient deficiency. So people are deficient in vitamin A, they will get lung disease and they're they're, they lose their eyesight. Once they lose their eyesight, they'll die within two years. Uh, you have anemia. So you have women who are um, reproducing and failing to reproduce because of lack of iron. And you can, you can overcome all of this by supplementing uh, food. So iodizing salt gets rid of goiter, for example. So a lot of progress is being made in uh, treating malnutrition. And the, the problem with obesity is that it has not ever received the financial investment it needs. Like in Ireland here, it's not my figures. These come from experts in the field of epidemiology. They tell me that it's uh, 1.2 billion euros a year is the direct cost of um, obesity. That's 1.2 billion. That's roughly uh, the total cost of the children's hospital every year. Now, if you ask yourself, how much money is being spent to combat that? <laughs> it's less than a few hundred thousand. It's just pathetic. So unless we spend money 
to tackle this problem, uh, we won't make we won't make the progress we need. And they are constantly seeking simple solutions like taxation, advertising, all of that. And that's fine. I don't mind. Regulatory aspects have to be dealt with, but they need to put bums on seats, people on the ground, community dietitians, community physical activity experts, community counsellors, and pop populator our educational system or our uh, industrial system with with people who can help uh, people maintain a normal weight or manage overweight if they are overweight i mean it's it's as bad to be lean and lazy as it's much better to be fat and fit than lean and lazy and mike i think you're just highlighting here the complexity of the issue and you know the, the challenges around trying to use simplistic solutions for, for complex issues and maybe just put something to you as well. We hear a lot about certain foods or certain food groups being bad uh, from a dietary perspective and from a health perspective. And if you eliminate food X from your diet, then all your problems are solved. Like if you eliminate sugar or if you eliminate red meat or if you eliminate uh, dairy from your diet, that it'll solve all problems. You know, surely that's too simplistic a view to take of any challenge. It is. I mean, the very first uh, couple of days that I was at Southampton University, uh, my then head of department, Professor Jeffrey Taylor, told me, he said, there's one law in human nutrition. There's no such thing as a good food or a bad food. There are good diets and bad diets. So if you give someone muesli breakfast, dinner and tea seven days a week, every day of the week of the year, they'll have a rotten diet. And if you give them Big Macs for the same, it'll have a rotten diet. But usually is part of a good diet and Big Macs can be enjoyed in a good diet. So identifying individual foods and saying this is the answer is utterly stupid, utterly stupid. But there is a lot of stupidity around obesity. There's a lot of people who come at this without a deep understanding of either the biology or the behavioral sciences of obesity. And it looks like a simple problem. So, uh, but definitely this idea that... uh, processed food or dairy foods or gluten or whatever, that's not the solution. The solution is um, controlling caloric intake, and it doesn't matter where it comes from, usually or Big Macs. And maybe to extend the argument, or not the argument, to extend the conversation a little bit, Mike, during your role as the director of the Institute of Food and Health, you looked at all the different sort of links in the food chain from the environmental challenge, the, you know, the, the, the food supply, the food safety, the food quality areas, um, you know, how can we make those messages clearer for consumers in, you know, when the consumer goes in to buy a product in a, in a, in a supermarket, how can we make it easier for the consumer to make an informed choice about what they're actually purchasing? Well, uh, in the last few years I was uh, working, I, headed a, a, a big uh, 17 million euro grant on what's called personalized nutrition. And that's the future, Tommy. Um, I mean, right now, if you go over to the Philips uh, outfit in Eindhoven, you'll see a smart kitchen. So you'll see a fridge which um, knows what you've purchased in your supermarket, what you've eaten in your works canteen, and what you've bought in a fancy restaurant. And it will it will dialogue with your supermarket when you go shopping. And you'll know exactly what you're doing right or wrong according to the video on your fridge screen. This is, this is not a dream. This is a reality. 
And when you go to the supermarket, you'll go much better informed as to what you're what you're going to have to buy. So, for example, um, you might be told by your your fridge computer that this week your salt intake has already reached the recommended level, and your salt is coming from the following foods. So we'd recommend that you change those and in, replace them with something else. Now we did this in three thousand people across Europe across using the internet, and it worked. So the future is uh, integrated technology and um, digital solutions to these problems. Uh, and, and there are people looking at it. It's going to happen. That, that, that reminds me a little bit of my own childhood, Mike, when you'd be going to the press for a biscuit and your mother would say, you've already had a biscuit today, you don't need another one. I, I find myself doing that with my own children now as well. But yeah, is that... Is there risk involved with that level of, I suppose, scrutiny on an individual? It sounds a bit like Big Brother is watching. Are there any implicit risks in that or are the risks associated with that sort of data collection at an individual level? Are they overplayed? Well, I, I, first of all, you don't have to buy into it if you don't want to. But if, if I, I think the, the, the digital generation will buy into it because you take a young uh, family going shopping and uh, there's someone else beside them Neither of them know what is the right purchases they need to make for the optimal diet of themselves and their children. They're guessing. But if they go into the supermarket and they have an informed choice that the family is not getting enough fiber, so we have to increase our fiber intake. So they'll take a look at all of the uh, foods that might help them increase their fiber intake. Um, and if you don't want to buy into this, then don't buy into it. But I think it's going to happen. And the... Smartphones are getting smarter all the time, um, and uh, I, I, I can't see it not happening. I can't see digital solutions not coming in to the food chain and to the consumer science. Yeah, and I think it's 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 a really interesting area of conversation and, and, and of research. And yeah, Maybe before I leave the point, how do we integrate that with the genetic differences that exist within uh, within human populations, you know, and I'm not comparing humans to animals for a moment, but we could feed any group of animals the same diet and we see very divergent performances. And and you had indicated earlier, Mike, that, you know, there's a genetic predisposition for obesity, about 8% of obesity is inherited. So will um, there need to be some individual data um, incorporated into those algorithms to allow individuals to make the best choice for, for their own diet? Well, <clears throat> I would say at the moment that... Uh, that's that's not a runner yet, um, because uh, the, the relationship between uh, 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 your food intake, the nutrients from that food, and some biological process are governed by so many genetic vari- vari- uh, so, so many genes that uh, if you just think about the Krebs cycle that we all studied those years ago, and you look at all those enzymes that are involved in it, and you ask yourself, um, you know. How many variants can you get on any one enzyme? It, it, I don't see personalized genetics being the way forward at the moment. The day will come, but right now, it's just too complicated. And that's why I see uh, simply taking an individual and saying, if you're an average person, uh, then you should be eating, roughly speaking, the average recommended diet. Let's take a look at your diet. And let's decide, are you meeting it or not? And hey, presto, you're not meeting it. You're 
saturated fats are too high, your salt is too high, your fiber is too low. Here's how to fix it. That's personalized food choice. That's the, that's the runner at right now. But the genetics is, is, is a little bit too complicated at the moment. But there are, there are areas of sort of down from the genes. If you go down into the, to, to what you call metabolic pools and, um, you know, metabolites, we, we, we did a lot of work in UCD and still going on on what's called metabolomics, the study of all metabolites in a, in a given biological fluid, which is a bit like fingerprinting. And you don't look for just one thing like cholesterol. You measure everything, even things you don't know what they are. And you get a, a digital pattern of a fingerprint of a person. And, and people who have the same diseases will fingerprint together. And people who have, like boys will imprint one place and girls another place. So that's that's probably more realistic than the genetics yet. We, we continue to come back to the same point here in, in the conversation, Mike. It's, it's the complexity of the challenge and that necessitates complex solutions then as well. Um, and that a single, any single metric approach is, is not going to yield good dividends. Maybe if we pull, pull out a little bit of the detail for of the conversation for a moment. Um, and, you know, I suppose since your retirement, um, you've you've been making this information more accessible to the general public, and you've written a number of books. And the title of one, uh, I think, really catches people's imaginations. Uh, it's ever seen a fat fox. So, how how important is it that we make this information, and how do we make this information accessible um, to the public, to the consumers? Because when we walk into the consume into the supermarket, we're all bombarded with with images and bright packaging and you know visually appealing packaging and you know the, the sweets are usually by the checkouts and there's various marketing strategies there as well to to influence our, our consumer purchase decisions but how can we make this complex nutritional information more palatable if you pardon the pun and, and more accessible to the consumer well um the people in who are involved in obesity policy would say that you need to have focus on labeling, and that's for sure. So you can you can introduce what you like. I mean, you can put a skull and crossbones now on foods, apparently, in South America, um, and and say to people, you, you know, you, you're just not to eat this. Um, but uh, and and you can you can regulate the, the 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 claims that are made. They are regulated, so you can do all of that. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there are there are people who get fat on on spuds and cakes. You know, it, it, there, there's a million ways to get overweight if you're predisposed to it. And it, there's no simple solution. So I think that you have to get down to the personal level. At the moment, the approach is population. And it's it's just giving out population advice. I do think you need to put uh, people on the ground in communities to facilitate and help them to uh, understand the importance of physical activity and the importance of, of healthy eating. And if you don't do that, nothing is going to happen. Simply nothing. So I think maybe just just before we finish up here, Mike, um, you know, you're somebody who has embraced challenge all through your career. You've you've you've, you've taken a, a number of different, I suppose, different big leaps in setting up new initiatives um, throughout your career. Um, Travelled internationally to do so. Have you know interacted with with the large just. Uh, food companies um, in, in Europe and, and globally. You know, 
what what advice would you offer to to people now who are maybe starting out on their career? A lot of our ASA members are young members, recent graduates. What advice would you offer to those people starting out on their career in terms of the best way to carve their own path? Um, I think if you, I've always said it to students when they come in to talk to me, like if they, if they want to do a PhD, if if you want to do something, there's a good chance you're going to do it. But first of all, you have to say, I want to do it. And then you have to work out for yourself, what do I need, need to do to get as close as possible to it? Now, it may be that on that road towards that goal, you decide that that's not what I want to do. I see a better chance over here. I think um, you, you have to be pro, proactive. And um, a, a very important thing would be to make yourself known to the uh, group that you would hope to join whether it's in industry or agriculture or government. And dropping emails is one way of doing it. But I really, really believe in knocking on doors and saying hello. And that's not always possible now. But where it's possible, it should be done. And uh, you, you have to have the dream and you have to logically go after it and be flexible in your thinking because you have to be practical as well as idealistic. And I think that's 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 a nice way to finish up. I think in a, in an increasingly technologically focused society, the personal st- touch still has an important role to play. Mike, I'd like to thank you again for your time this morning. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I think I could have talked to you for, for much longer about the, the whole range of topics we've covered this morning. But listen, we'll draw a line under it there for today. And, and thanks very much and continued enjoyment of your retirement. Thank you very much, Tommy. <laughs>